Welcome to Leadership in the Digital Age with Professor Vijay Gurbaksani, Director of the Center for Digital Transformation at the Paul Mirage School of Business at UC Irvine. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with executives on the forefront of digital transformation. Welcome, Lisa. Uh, so what, I, what we're gonna to talk to Lisa about is, is really sort of how do we achieve the promise of technology, digital technologies in particular while minimizing uh, the peril. And you know, if you just follow the news these days, it's so obvious, right? I mean, we look at all the examples we featured today of companies that are doing incredible things with technology, but yet right now we can't agree on whether masking is a good thing, whether vaccines are a good thing, whether the news is true or fake, um, and then, of course, you know, all the, the, the security threats and ransomware threats that we've been seeing recently. So we have to balance all of these out. And we thought we couldn't find any, but we thought Lisa would be just a perfect person to talk about. It. She's on several boards. Uh, but before she joined the board, she was also at Visa for many years, uh, uh, you know, the global head for AI and data. And before that, she even led IBM Watson's project. So has a long and storied background in this field. Uh, so welcome, Lisa, and, and uh, Thank you. Um, talk a little bit about yourself and just, you know, like a little introduction to who you are and how you got to where you are today, and then we'll switch to the actual subject of this session. Yeah, well, I think that uh, my 28 years has been characterized by chasing AI problems. And so that spans a great number of use cases uh, that has not only been on the medical side, where we've been looking at drug discovery and how we use genomic data in different ways to uh, become far more targeted in our brethren UCSF, right, a little bit up north, as well as uh, looking at retail problems, how we reimagine the shopper experience, all the way to um, what I would really call some of our thorniest issues in banking, right, on the institutional side. How are we able to craft risk models whereby we can detect black swans in the market well before they happen and get out ahead of fraud rings and anti-money laundering and things of that sort. So it's been a, a time where I've really seen AI evolve into a multidisciplinarian uh, study and uh, probably let the emotion migrate to the data side, which is really where most of the emotion is. It's on the data. It's not in the algorithms. Algorithms are pretty old, and that dragon was slain about 60 years ago with most of them. So we're, um, so you sort of alluded to um, a lot of the sort of the, the, the challenges we have with technology. What do you think some of the most salient opportunities and challenges So, uh, given where you sit today on these boards and, and your past at Visa? You know, I think the choices of how we're deploying technology and consuming technology have never been more stark. So what I mean by that is if you're on the consumption side, I think that you're finally in a position to choose how you control your own data, uh, which services you elect to use. Um, I think that there's transparency around the social responsibility of some of the technology vendors. And I think you know, opt in and out uh, far more easily than you ever have been. So that's, you know, we have a whole set of waves going on on the consumer side. But then on the creator side or, you know, the enabler side, I think we're seeing that 
you know, there are a number of different shifts that are occurring in things as varied as distributed networks, where we started with a big, big cloud and everything was really centralized. And the promise of that was sharing and flexing resources. And now we've broken up into, you know, hundreds of thousands of points of light in point-to-point -point networks. So that's, that's changing. And then, of course, the implications of that change on the enabler side would be, you know, what's your, what's your story around creating a more intimate customer experience or employee experience? Are you going to be using even all the way down? We had some presenters, uh, Sterling, for example, talking about autonomous vehicles. Are we going down to the chip level right now, whereby things that we did at, at IBM while I was, you know, running Watson, beating chess champions, where the instruction set drills down into those individual chips and we grid out the analytics in very unique ways. And so, you know, I think if you're looking at the technology shifts as an enabler right now, you really are reinventing yourself probably in the next three years. So let's switch to something that, um, you know, Joe touched on, you know, the pandemic is having, <clears throat> as we're reading every day, very unequal effects on different segments of the population. And yes. you know, the University of California is enormously committed to diversity uh, so, uh, and inclusion, uh, equity and inclusion. And, and, you know, we've all read about sort of the challenges with AI. And I think you have some wonderful examples of sort of, um, you know, there's not much you can do about people who have conscious bias and want to sort of act on it. But but I think most people are well-meaning and sort of some of these outcomes surprise them. Talk to us a little bit about what you see in the world of AI around bias, uh, unconscious bias in particular. Yeah, you know, here I find myself speaking to a professor. So I'm going to grade us as an industry. And I'm going to say in having technology fulfill its promise of reaching harder to reach populations, we are not even at C level. We're probably at D or F level, really, quite frankly. And um, I make a bold statement like that because the promise is there for the technology to do it today. So there are clearly other barriers that are at play. So for example, if I look at uh, single moms and single moms living in Oakland, and you know they have two sets of problems. Number one, they can't even get the heating working in their apartment. It's not that hard to build mobile applications like Health Leads is doing, which is a fantastic organization that's reaching out to um, some of these families and getting them the resources. Because if you're bringing your child into the emergency room multiple times and they keep getting prescribed antibiotics every single four weeks, something is systemically wrong, right? You're not going to cure the underlying condition that the apartment is moldy and that the child is breathing in um, you know, uh, fungi that's actually contributing to a chronic lung disease. And so why should we be filling up that body with antibiotics when really what we should be doing is getting the mom resources to how she can take the landlord to task to cleaning up the mold in her apartment? I mean, that's what we all need to do in prevention and medicine. And so I really do believe that a mobile app 
in the hands of those families would go a long way in just um, changing the dynamic of staying healthy and putting health and wellness at the forefront. And as I said, again, you know, uh, the, the team at Health Leads in Oakland is doing a, a phenomenal job at doing that. We, we just need more of them. And we mean, need more technology companies that are aimed at that. Um, secondarily, I will tell you at Visa, a staggering statistic, uh, $51 billion are lost in the U.S. economy every single year due to unreclaimed loyalty points. So loyalty points are a form of digital currency. It's not like a Bitcoin. It doesn't get all the press. But, you know, you do need to recognize that buying gas, buying groceries, there are ways you can do it and make your dollars stretch by using these loyalty points. Well, a lot of these families that are struggling to get out of poverty, and by the way, they're better credit risks than some people who are overextended that are making you know six-figure income. Those families don't know about how to leverage those loyalty programs. They don't know how to make those dollars stretch. And this is a perfect use of AI. And we just don't see a proliferation of, um, you know, systems out there or enablement. Now, Sherry Riva is doing a fantastic job in that front. I have to give her a shout out. She was number one in her class at Harvard Kennedy, and she has founded Compass Capital to go after those families. But we need more Sherry's. We need more technology partners to partner with Sherry. And then I think, you know, we go some way to address uh, communities that are just vulnerable for a yep. lot of reasons. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, we featured the CEO of Heal, which is the home healthcare company, and they had very much the same insight as you did, which is when you see somebody at home and you're actually examining them in their house, you see a lot of different things that are not reported in a medical office visit, for example. But I do want to touch on something that you did tell me before, which is um, it may be easier because of these systems for somebody who's mortgaged to the health, but to the health but has a high income to get a loan compared to a single mom, let's go back to Oakland, uh, who's actually paid all her bills on time, uh, but would get marked down by the way some of these systems are actually uh, developed. Uh, can you speak to that, sort of some of these implicit biases that we probably don't even know that we're codifying? Absolutely. So anytime you're thinking about credit risk or worthiness that play a role into extending the assets or, you know, uh, the credit that you're giving to people, those are run largely by decision trees, right? A, a very understood form of AI. And the decision tree branches out on nodes. In fact, it has weighted attributes and depending on how those attributes are weighted, it forks out the tree and the tree is dynamically created. And so if you're looking at the standard way in which people are evaluated, the very first fork on that tree will be, are you married? Because are you married determines how you are risk worthy, right? And, and in fact, you could do a simple experiment on your own. If you go out with a friend of yours to mylife.com, and I don't know if they still have this service app, but if you check your own you know, score, if, you, if you're with a friend of yours who has never been married, 
and it's you who has been married, and you ask to type in your score, you will see a dramatic difference in terms of how people are scored based on their marital status. And that is just a legacy of the way these trees were built long ago, and they've never really been thought to change. But in reality, the algorithm should be a lot more sensitive than that, because I would say that just looking at it kind of as an investor, which I have been, if I'm looking at two people and I'm looking at one person who's married and they have, you know, the $5 million house and the boat and the three cars and, you know, they're just very overextended and they're living a, a, a life versus somebody who's paid off all their bills and they're ready to buy a house and they're getting themselves out of poverty and no, you know, it's a single mom. She's never going to be married, but, you know, she has two kids Who's, who do I really believe is probably going to be making their monthly payment? Anecdotally, I would say absolutely her, right? And so I think if the algorithms were able to be tuned to what some of our own intuition would say, we would end up with a far more equitable um, set of capabilities. And also we would be doing good by pulling people out of poverty, which is what we should be focused on. So I'm going to merge my question with one of the questions that just came in uh, over the audience line. But, you know, so there's a lot of focus on the tech sector, the Googles and the Facebooks on sort of their privacy practices. And, their, and you know, they're obviously under a lot of sort of uh, uh, they're in the microscope uh, uh, a lot. Um, but and then the question is, in your opinion, to what extent do you think these te the technology industry are being ethically responsible to their creation and not just data collection driven? And I don't know if you can see the book on my shelf, but I've got surveillance <laughs> capitalism uh, behind me somewhere. Uh, and I'm curious about sort of so so there's one is the focus on the tech sector, but Visa is sort of a tech company, not officially one, but of course it is. Uh, and then you've got everybody else, including sort of, you know, you hear uh, Pecor and, and Aurora, they're all dealing with ethical issues. I mean, I don't think there's a single company out there that in some way or form is not dealing with this, including the university. Uh, what's your sort of overall perspective of sort of this, I don't even know what the right word is, but tension between being data-driven to drive efficiency and performance and being sensitive to the implications of what it is you're building? Um, so there again, it's a tale of two cities, right? So we're at this point where we have the technology to deliver everything that is the promise of the personalized experience, which is what people want. And we also have the technology to mask it, to anonymize it, to put it into the consumer's hands and have the consumer opt in to how it's used. Where things get um, tricky. And this is where, you know, certain players have come under fire in the last really two years more than anywhere else. And I would almost argue, by the way, BJ, that it's a fight club-esque <laughs> type of uh, climate today, right, around this data. So um, where things get tricky is in the power, right? Who has the power over the data subject? And, um, you know, I want to do two things in answering your question. I want to, um, you know, kind of bow to the previous presenters. We had people talking about um, autonomous vehicles and um, carbon and different forms of data, right? And then I also want to um, point you all to a fairly seminal Harvard Business Review article on Project Maven that detailed Google and, and the response to data privacy. Now, the interesting thing about Project Maven, if you dig into that case study, is that, uh, you know, if, to refresh everybody's memory, it was, it was going to be um, 
PI elements coming from a consumer that were put into a big uh, data store, into a data lake, that data was going to be refined and combined with other things. And at the end of the journey, what that data was designed to do was to target with surgical precision um, certain perceived criminals with a drone. Okay, and so again, data is going on this journey where it gets to a point where it's actually directing the optimization algorithm in the machine itself. So it started off as PI elements. And so what happened was a bunch of Google employees walked out because they were conscientious objectors of using that data for warfare. But we kind of buried the headline in that story because the real issue and where things get thorny is that the data subjects, which means those people whose PI elements were collected and they were just using Google for search franchise or for ads or whatever, they never consented to their data being used in a warfare setting. So the question is, how do you tell or how do you inform the data subject about where their data may actually end up at the end of the day? And the tech giants are under fire because people feel they've not addressed that challenge. And so because we have this power shift, now we usher in the era that I get involved in where I sit on ethics boards. And people start saying, okay, what, is, what are the ethics of using this data? In what cases do we have people opt out of their PI elements? So, you know, it, the, the employees are kind of a sideshow. The real issue is the data subjects. And so where I think we need to go and where I think the, the consumers will naturally demand that we do go is that we have simple alerting that opts them in to turning on their camera, recording their voice, capturing their thumbprint or any biometric data, um, you know, allowing them to um, enter a natural language processing string, anything. You will need to let them know that, you know, they have to opt in and there are security concerns in doing so. And then I think what the technology will ultimately do, because I already see it happening it, with the gamers, by the way, is I think ultimately the, the technology will all be hashed and quantum encrypted. So it can't be used in any other form. And it will always be in the control of the consumer at all times. It won't even go out into the cloud. It won't even go into the satellite. And I think that that will happen. And I think that's happening probably faster than we realize. But, that, but that's kind of where we're at right now in the way of commentary around this data and the emotion around it. I think that's a perfect place to end because I think you leave us with an optimistic note that we are actually further along uh, a path to less surveillance and, and sort of more benefits to mankind and uh, humankind. And uh, I think it was very illustrative. And so thank you again for that. Uh, we really appreciate your thoughts on, and, uh, you know, like I said, you know, your experience is, is amazing with, with companies like Visa, which have been so socially responsible in so many ways. So thank you, Lisa. And uh, thank you. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for listening to Leadership in the Digital Age. We hope you will follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at UCI underscore CDT or on our YouTube channel, UCI Center for Digital Transformation. Please be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to give us a review. Until next time.